It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Ms. Catherine Cruz. Catherine Cruz is a journalist and host of Hawaii Public Radio's The Conversation. She previously spent 30 years as a television reporter for KITV in Honolulu. She is also a co-founder of Pacific Islanders in Communication, a national nonprofit. Please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Catherine Cruz. Well, aloha and thanks so much for joining us for this session on TMT. And I'm not talking 30 meter telescope, but uh, too much tourism. Uh, we've all been reading the headlines, uh, but let me first uh, introduce our panel here tonight. We have Frank Haas, who is a marketing consultant. He's uh, focused on travel and tourism projects in Hawaii and internationally. He previously served as the Vice President of Marketing for the Hawaii Tourism Authority and as the Dean of the Hospitality and Tourism Program at Kapi'olani Community College. Uh, Martha Honey is the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Responsible Travel, which is headquartered in Washington, D.C. She's written and lectured widely on cruise and resort tourism, climate change, and coastal and marine tourism. She was also named one of the world's top 10 eco-travel watchdogs by Condonast Traveler. And Peter Apo is a cultural tourism consultant and former trustee of the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. He previously served as a Hawaii State Legislator, as the Director of Culture and Arts for the City of Honolulu, and is Chair of the Native Hawaiian Hospitality Association, and works side, alongside George Kanahele and Kenny Brown to make sure that we have an authentic voice in our industry. And uh, John Knox is a public policy researcher and former president of the Hawaii Economic Association. He's prepared social and economic impact studies for dozens of Hawaii resorts and designed and analyzed all major Hawaii resident surveys about tourism between 1988 and 2008. And as I started out, you know, we've been seeing the headlines about uh, the forecast for 10 million uh, visitors this coming year. We almost got it last year. Uh, Hawaii Business Magazine recently did a survey to weigh uh, communities' uh, sentiment about the pros and the cons of tourism, and you know, no surprise, uh, a lot of the pushback is coming from the neighbor islands. Uh, we did see Kauai step up and say, you know what, we think our tipping point is 25,000 visitors per day. They exceeded that uh, over the last couple of years, so they're towing the line saying, 25,000 $25, visitors uh, is enough. Uh, this morning, I interviewed a former colleague of mine on the conversation, Denby Fawcett. She wrote an article for Honolulu Civil Beat. Uh, she talked about how there was a dangerous situation at the entrance of the Diamond Head Crater. Uh, apparently, uh, on Christmas Day, they had 20, uh, excuse me, they had 4,000 visitors on Christmas Day when they normally see 3,000. So it's a dangerous situation there. And I've seen early morning at 5.30, we see the, the buses and the trolleys and the vans queuing up to get in at 6 a.m. in the morning. So that's my personal experience because I've seen it there myself. So I'm going to start out by asking each of you to share an experience where you felt a little uncomfortable. Uh, you, know, you weren't having, any, 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 having a lot of fun because maybe there were too many tourists or too many people. So Frank? Uh, well, I'll talk about uh, too many people in the sense that too many people in the wild. If you've uh, read the story in the Star Advertiser a while ago about the hippie bus that uh, was parked uh, by Kapilani Park, uh, and as a result of that story, the, the guy that was, had this bus had had seven births in it, and um, he was charging $30 a night for people there. So uh, this big story ran in the paper, and the next, the next day he left Kapilani Park, but I f he was across the street from my house. In, in Kailua. 
So I've personally seen, uh, it's not the number of tourists, it's where they are. And uh, across the street from my house is too many tourists. <laughs> and, and Martha, what about you? You've uh, seen the world, uh, so what's, what are some of your experiences? Well, I think the one I wanted to mention was Barcelona, which I went to look at last year. Uh, partly because we were doing a book, um, we're doing a book on over-tourism that I'm editing, and I wanted to see firsthand what's, what's going on. And it was, you know, it was in many ways shocking, but in some ways sort of hopeful. Um, shocking because it's just a conglomeration of factors that have come together, sort of a perfect <coughs> storm of problems that have come together in Barcelona. Too much cruise tourism, too much um, uh, Airbnb or short-term um, rentals, too much day visitors coming in on buses, uh, cheap air, airlines, and then the whole sort of selfie culture and, um, and bucket list, that people want to come and just take a picture and leave. All of these kinds of tourism are not leaving much money behind in the destination, but they're filling it up to overcapacity. The good news is in Barcelona um, that they have now elected the first woman mayor, I think, in all of Europe, and the first mayor elected on a controlled tourism agenda. And they have a, a national, uh, they have a, a citywide um, effort underway to create a master plan for 2020 to control this. And we did a forum in Washington recently where we brought over their chief person who's in charge of this. And it was very interesting. I mean, multifaceted, multidimensional, task force that's looking at the problem led by government. And I think one of the things I came away with was that government has to be front and center in addressing the problem, but lots and lots of stakeholders have to be involved. I really think that Barcelona and some of the other cities in, in around the Mediterranean in Europe are kind of the canary in the coal mine for what we're beginning to face in, in the US and in Canada. And so it's really important to pay attention to both what they're suffering, but also how they're beginning to address it. Okay, and Peter? You know, uh, one day I, I, I was going to a business meeting over on the Windward side, and I had to go through Kaneohe, and I was actually heading around, still on the other side of the North Shore. When I came out, it was shorter to come back this way, but I thought, well, I'll go take a look. I was an hour and 25 minutes because of the traffic that was mm -hmm. caused at the tur where the people go to look for turtles. And uh, when they removed the, uh, the parking restriction there and allowed uh, people to park and cross the street. And you know, to sit in a car that long, you, you gotta figure some kind of disaster happened to be that long going for a few miles. But when I got up to that point, I was like totally frustrated mm. to see it was because we had to stop to let a tourist cross the street. That was my deal. <laughs> and John, what's yours? Last summer, I uh, took a trip around Scandinavia and came back and uh, went through Iceland. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated with that place because of its similarities to Hawaii. It's a little colder, um, <laughs> but they got a whole lot of volcanoes and they have a whole lot of tourists. Now, I was one of them. So I was not the resident being impressed by a tourist, but I was a tourist being impressed by the number of tourists there. And of course, a whole lot of the destinations, uh, the attractions there are natural resources like us. So as we went on these uh, roads and highways in, in a tour bus, I said, wow, this is a very deserted country, but I wonder what they think of us. Whether they feel deserted, because there's sure a whole lot of us when we stop at these waterfalls and, and glaciers. 
So on my last morning there, I went and talked to the Iceland Tourist Bureau research chief, and we just, it was just, oh yeah, that's us too, us too, us too. <laughs> so I got to be both the, the tourist and the resident and understand everybody's perspective there, but it was a whole lot like us. Well, and you're a numbers guy, and you know we're talking uh, 10 million visitors here, and, and folks are wondering, well, is this the tipping point? You know, what are, what are some of the solutions? So uh, if I could maybe start with you. Sure, the question on the floor is, is, too many, is 10 million visitors too many visitors, or how many visitors is too many visitors? And that's a very, very complicated question, but it comes with a qualification. Uh, 10 million visitors is too many visitors if it's not well managed. It's all about managing it, and I don't think we've done a very good job at it. Uh, and this comes from years and years of years of uh, trying to really build tourism here in Hawaii. I came to Hawaii in 1980, and I can't remember how many visitors we had then. It was like three and a half million or so. And hey, we you know bring them on. Let's uh, let's do mass promotions. Bring people here. So that's that was 30. 38 years ago, so now here we are in 2019, it's a different world, things have changed. And what's changed is the, uh, the volume, and what the volume is dictating is that we need to create a management plan for them. How many visitors is too many? 500 visitors on Laniakea Beach is too many. Uh, 5,000 visitors on Diamond Head, Beach, Diamond Head Trail is too many. Uh, one visitor across the street from my house is too many. <laughs> but it's, it's site specific, these are where the pain points are and they're pain points because we're not managing them. So it's a con uh, John and I worked on a project back 15 years ago. Uh, the DBED asked the same question, Department of Business, how many visitors is too many visitors? And it's a little like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, and, and DBED said, we can't give you the answer. And they didn't have a very good reason for it, I thought, but the, the better reason is it depends. It depends on what kind of visitors and how you're managing them, and I'll, I'll cede the floor, but I'll be happy to talk about that more later. So I would just say amen. I think that you're absolutely right that it's how, how visitors are managed and the whole concept of what has been called caring capacity, which is an effort to try to determine how many visitors are the appropriate number, I think has really been debunked and is not, it's not worth going down that route. I mean, obviously, at some point there are too many visitors, but it is about management and control of, of the visitors and also the kind of visitors that you want. And I think um, that really one of the challenges for, for Hawaii is how to be capturing, rather than the, the, the tourism success being measured in increased number of visitors each year, but how much money is being left in the country, how much is being kept here. And that, that is trying to attract and keep high quality visitors rather than high quantities of visitors. So it's, it's management and the kind of visitors who are, who are coming. And Frank, I know you had worked on a white paper yeah. to talk about that very point, mm -hmm. that 30 years ago, our visitors were spending more than they are today. Yeah, in, yeah. Real, in real money terms, that is inflation-adjusted terms, 1989 was a peak year for visitors, and we have just now equaled that. Mm -hmm. So between 1989 and 2019, we have about the same yeah. real economic impact, and we have about three and a half million more visitors. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean, three and a half more million people on the trails uh, with needs for policing, lifeguards, uh, water, sewage, all those things that, uh, that come with the uh, increase in visitors, but about the same number of impacts. So it, it will come down to what kind of visitors. And the good news, and there are solutions, and I will yield the floor to you because I want to hear from these guys, but these days with uh, the uh, improvements in technology, we can really 
better pinpoint the types of visitors that are higher spending in real terms and uh, have less impact. Just as one example, then I'll turn it over because I could talk forever about this, but uh, for corporate meetings, uh, for example, those visitors spend about 30% more per day than average. Honeymooners spend about 15% more per day visitors than the average visitor. And we have a wealth of data here. We can dive into that data and find those people who are really better economic contributors to our economy and less uh, stay at full service hotels, which creates more employment, are less likely to you know, go off in the wild and park across from my house. All those things <laughs> that, uh, that could affect this. And, okay, John. Yeah, I, the decline in visitor spending on an average daily basis was really well, it, it's been going on somewhat in the last six years. It was going on a whole lot in the 90s and uh, the 2000s. Uh, that's when there was this huge decrease. For the first time, the official state forecasts put up by the Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism project ongoing declines in daily visitor spending, even as they project ongoing increases. Our government kind of made up for that in terms of collecting the money that we need to pay for the costs by imposing the TAT and then increasing the TAT. So government has been getting more money from tourists uh, in a way that you wouldn't expect from, from looking at, at their, their spending patterns. But how long can that pattern of ratcheting up taxes go on if we continue to have this pattern, and even our higher spending visitors are spending less relatively than they used to. And we don't know, uh, I'm, I'm curious if Martha knows whether this is a pattern elsewhere, because well, we don't know here. I, I was going to say that our study we recently did mm -hmm. in the Dominican Republic found exactly, which is the, the largest tourism market in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. more, um, more earnings from tourism and more numbers of tourists. But in fact, the spending per tourist has been going down over the last 30 years. And there, it, it's in part all-inclusive resorts. I think it's all-inclusive resorts and cruise tourism. Two problems that I think you really don't have, but I'd be curious to know, you know what, what the issues are here. But I think that this is, this is, a, this, this is not unique to Hawaii, and it, yeah. and it does really need to be looked at and studied. Yeah. And Peter, I apologize. I should have started with you because you are you represent our host culture here in Hawaii, and we're all visitors here. Uh, but what's what's your take from where you I'll sit? I'll tell you what is unique to Hawaii, and and you know, in the interest of time, we went out of time, and I wanted to have some economy of words. So, I want to I want to read you the beginning part of a column I wrote ten years ago. Uh, <clears throat> first, I'm on record as being an outspoken Native Hawaiian advocate of quality tourism. I am an advocate of quality tourism uh, growth, with an unwavering belief that the aloha traditions, the practice of welcoming and hosting strangers to our islands, is a matter of honor and cultural dignity. Aloha defines us as a people. It's in our, our DNA. The words Hawaii and aloha are two of the most powerful marketing brands in the world, recognized by people living in the remotest places on earth. Hawaiians and Hawaiian culture is the genesis from which emerged our multi-billion dollar industry whose meteoric growth over the last three quarters of a century now represents a third of Hawaii's gross state product. And yet, 
hidden beneath all the success and wealth and growth, uh, uh, wealth and growth as an industry, there is a buried tragic story. And that tragedy is the alienation of the Hawaiian community and their culture from the very industry they helped to create. How can it be that Hawaiians and Hawaiian culture can be so distanced from an industry that came to uh, existence because of them? How can it be that our business model ignores the profound moral abridgment of the disconnect between the world's greatest hosting population and those who would be hosted? How can it be that Hawaiian people have become so irrelevant to the future of tourism? By any measure, right and wrong, this is wrong. Now, you can get a lot of arguments about that, but basically, the reality is that there is this love-hate relationship the love part is because it is natural for Hawaiians and all of Hawaii to welcome visitors and to be friendly. It's the business model. And as Frank started pointing out, the management has to change. Right. Uh, we, we see the, the headlines and we think, you know, where's the adult in the room, right? Well, we're the adults in the room. Uh, something's got to get fixed. You know, we, in the Philippines, uh, President Duterte uh, shut down a resort island for six months so that the resource could heal. You know, the city has tried to manage Hanama Bay. Uh, we've seen up on Haleakala, the National Park Service is trying to limit the number of visitors there because they only have 150 parking spaces and fights are breaking out, so they've got to go to a reservation system. So do we start to say, okay, we've got to do things like this? Yeah, we start to do, we need to start doing something different. Uh, you know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So you need to do something different. We, it is difficult. Um, you know, how many tourists is too many? We can't throw people off the airplane. It's, um, there's this thing called the Commerce Clause in the Constitution. People, people have the right to come here and we can't say no, but we can manage it by zoning, rules, regulations, taxes, resort, uh, fees, things like that. So we need to start looking at things we've never looked at before. We need to do that before it becomes a crisis. We have reacted in the past when it's a crisis. If you're here long enough to remember uh, when we started imposing restrictions on Hanama Bay, everybody said, a lot of people said, well, we can't do that. You have to have let people have access. But there were too many people and they were feeding frozen peas to the fish, for goodness sakes. And, <laughs> and um, we, somebody said we have to stop. And now it's, it's managed, not, I would say not well enough, but it's managed. You have to look at a safety video before you go down there. Uh, you, um, they close the place on Tuesdays to clean it up. They put a restriction on the people. We need to look at that for Laniakea. We need to figure out how to manage the number of people at Montevili Falls. Um, and that, that requires a different kind of thinking than we've had before. On the peas, I had a friend actually uh, was at Hanama Bay and a parrotfish, an uhu, came up and she was trying to feed the little fish some peas and the parrotfish took a bite out of her knee and left a huge scar. So it's, you know, it's that kind of thing. It's like, how much is yeah. too much? Uh, one, one other quick follow-up. I've done some work internationally, and we do have this constitution. We do have people who have rights. I've worked on some stuff in Morocco and Singapore and other places which are a little more authoritarian. And when you talk about Philippines, right. they, you know, they can close an island. <laughs> we can't do that. So we have to figure out how to do it within the model that we have. And uh, that requires a little bit of uh, creative thinking, but it's, it's possible. I would argue it's possible. And Martha? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that, that, that's, that, that it, it would be wise for Hawaii to look at some, what's going on in some of the other places around the world. For instance, in both the U.S. and, um, 
and Canadian Park Services, National Park Services, there is a lot of a concern about over-tourism and, and they're moving to try to get ahead of the, the problem. I mean, they're already, it's already a problem in some parks, but basically they are looking at traffic management, at um, reser advanced reservations, a number of things that it seems to me would, you know, could be useful here. And the other, the other thing, just in my few days here, uh, sort of observations, but it does seem to me that there is also a lot of, um, a, a lot of cities are grappling with the short-term rentals. And there's a lot of legislation out there now that could provide some models for here. I mean, I'm really quite kind of surprised that Oahu doesn't have real legislation in place around the, the short-term rentals. Right. All you have to do is Google and see the other cities that have said, no, we're banning right. Airbnb or VRBO Well, either they're licensing or the, the um, owner has to be in the property that is being rented or one place in Italy, they're not letting any rentals go for seafront properties, only for places that don't have any view of the ocean, and you know, keep the, the good places for the locals. That makes sense to me. And, um, you know, and there's just a whole variety of different measures that are out there that could provide some real instruction for, for how to handle things here. You know, Catherine, when, uh, when Frank mentioned the, the, uh, the need for management, and certainly that's true, uh, the need for management, uh, I recall, I'm going to speak about uh, Hawaii Tourism Authority, HTA. Uh, HTA was intended to be the center of gravity uh, for tourism, but their forerunner, which was the Hawaii Visitors Bureau, the mission was really clear. It was 100% marketing, that was up front. It was a membership organization, it worked really well. But then uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the 70s, 80s, complaints began to rise. The legislature, even though the, the tourism was a, a major industry for Hawaii, didn't even have a committee on tourism at all until the complaints started to come in. And then uh, HTA, the dialogue on that was HTA was supposed to be an agency that not only dealt with marketing, but it was supposed to begin to address a lot of the other issues uh, in anticipation of tourism. And it started out good. The, it was the Hawaii uh, strategic state plan that came out with nine objectives. And those nine objectives were reflected in the HTA budget. One of the objectives was marketing. The other eight had to do with the environment, had to do with Hawaiian culture and all of those. So that it was a, a good start. It was a, was a really well intended. And then, and Frank, Frank might speak more to this. And as the years went by, the other objectives seemed to disappear off the, off the allocation plate until we're now done 180, we've, I mean, we've come clear circle. So now it looks to me the optic is that HDA is all about marketing. So if you are part of a, a, a recipient of HDA money, as I understand it today, you need to kind of show on how whatever it is in the grant that you get, and I may be wrong, I stand to be corrected, you have to show that it's somehow connected to selling an airline seat or a hotel room. I, I did happen to bring the uh, mission of the uh, Hawaii Tourism Authority, and it was, uh, and this is from the original uh, statute, and it's still there to this day. Strategically manage Hawaii's tourism in a sustainable manner consistent with economic goals, community desires, and visitor industry needs. There ain't nothing wrong with that. So why hasn't that happened? Um, Paul Brubaker, Jim Mack, who's an emeritus professor of economics, and I have written a paper. We, we concluded there are really three reasons that the, uh, the mission has not been accomplished. 
the uh, Hawaii Tourism Authority doesn't have authority. You know, if you look at how tourism is managed, it's, it's compartmentalized across county, state, federal, NGO, private sector, and nobody's coordinating this thing. And Hawaii Tourism Authority doesn't have the authority to uh, undertake that management. And the second is, is uh, resources. You know, when we talk about managing tourism apart from marketing, marketing is the heritage of marketing was H HVCB, and that's been something that we know how to do. How do we manage sites like Montevili Falls, Laniakea? That's gonna take some money, and we just haven't spent the money on it. And the third thing is a, a long-range plan, because some of these issues like uh, vacation rentals have been lingering for, th what, 30 years, and some of the other issues like homelessness are really, in the resort areas, are really tricky problems that are gonna take some time to solve. So we need a long-range state plan that coordinates all these different agencies uh, to deal with it. Um, I did some work in Singapore. They have a 25-year plan. And you had mentioned that maybe there needs to be a tourism czar. Well, uh, in this paper that we wrote, we didn't, we didn't get prescriptive. We said, we don't want to say we have a solution. We need to do back what they did in 1998 when they created HTA, which is create a, a, a bunch of people around the table to understand the problem, to understand objectively what the problem is, and then collectively come up with a solution that, that works for everybody. I endorse most of that. I'm, I'm a little bit um, uncertain about how we proceed. But let me, let me take it back a little bit further. We go through these cycles of discussing this issue. It's always there at, at some level, but in terms of the intensity of the discussion, it has risen and fallen. <clears throat> and what I remember, particularly in the 80s, was, which was a time of, an, of intense, especially in the neighbor islands, just in, intense growth. Uh, in the 80s, that phenomenon that Peter and, and Frank were talking about of, of more and more complaints, the legislature beginning to respond, they created something called the Tourism Impact Management System. Still in the books, as far as I know. Uh, and this was before HTA. It was the impetus for the first major statewide, the first time that people kind of listened to residents by doing a, a statewide resident survey. I got to do it, I got to design it and analyze it. But then the 90s came. The 90s was a period of stagnation. And that whole movement just kind of died away. The HTA came about not because of, uh, even though it had the had the, the impetus from that tourism impact management thing about managing the destination, and that language got rolled into uh, originally some of the uh, HTA stuff. But it, it came out of that time of stagnation. And uh, so there was a lot of, the, the law for HTA still does say that a special uh, emphasis is going to be given to promotion and marketing. And it does say all those other things as well. Then in the early 2000s, we had uh, another big spurt in visitor growth. Temporarily, 2001 uh, put, it, put it down for a while, but it came back strong. That led to the, the carrying capacity study and the sustainable tourism study in which you guys and I was all so involved. And then that hit the Great Recession, and that talk all kind of died down. We are now having this wave of discussion again, 
I'll tell you, though, that most economists believe we're going to have a recession in the next year or two, and tourism is already softening. I don't know whether temporarily or not, but the last quarter, last year was a fantastic boom year, but the last quarter, not so much, and it got worse and worse every month. I'm really waiting to see what things are going to be like. So I am very interested whether right now we are going to remember that even if tourism dies down and the emphasis again goes on getting people here, that this issue is going to come back again too. Right, we know how vulnerable we are, whether it's SARS or a natural disaster, you know, a tsunami, a giant earthquake or lava. Uh, we're in this very vulnerable position. Uh, and Martha, you know, I don't know if there's, there's anything you can add about, you know, what needs to work or what's worked in, in other places uh, that you've studied? Well, I think there, uh, yeah, I think there are a number of things that are working. I mean, I, I do think that with a softening of the economy, there is going to be less tourism, but it doesn't mean that some of the, the impetus behind what is driving over tourism is not still there. I mean, a large growing middle class and cheap air flights, et cetera, et cetera, are, are still there. So I think we're going to be continuing to face the problem. I think that Iceland is very interesting. It was, it, was, it was good that you were able to visit there because they are grappling with over-tourism um, in part by trying to disperse the tourists. I mean, it's mainly around the capital, Reykjavik, is my understanding, has been the, the main problem. And so they're trying, they're developing routes that will send people to different parts of the island and also expanding the season. So they're trying to make it year-round tourism and really promote winter, winter stays in, in, uh, in Iceland. And so I think that that's, you know, that's part of, excuse me, that's, that's definitely part of the um, solution in a number of countries to look for where tourism is less and try to disperse it. They're doing that in, in uh, the Mediterranean, also trying to find smaller towns that aren't, you know, aren't as well known as Barcelona and Venice and, and, uh, and so on and have tours go there. I think tour operators are extremely important in this because they, in a way, are sort of bearing the brunt of disgruntled tourists who go to places and say, oh, it was way too overcrowded. And so they're really taking the initiative in many ways to look for other routes, other places to send tourists and so on. You know, Kathy, interesting that, I mean, there are so many bright people working on this, but they're in different places, working on different pieces of it. It's the blind man and the elephant. Um, and what's lacking in large part is coordination and planning and management. I was, uh, I, I, if you haven't read the uh, Kauai tourism plan, the county plan, it actually says we want fewer visitors. And uh, in talking to some people, here's a frustration. They said they want fewer visitors, but the Department of Transportation is building more air capacity into Kauai. And people are saying, wait a second, aren't you guys talking to each other? And that's, that's a real problem. People are not coordinating their efforts, they're not talking to each other, they're not looking at a master plan, and um, that's, that's, we're gonna still have this hodgepodge unless we figure out how to create a new model. Peter? Uh, George Connelly was one, of, was one of my mentors, and he came up with an interesting template, uh, management template, uh, that he called the guest host place triangle, and uh, I call it Ho'okaliki balance. And the triangle, at one uh, point, is the guest, another point is the, ho the hosting community, and then the place itself. And his model said that benefits and the uh, tourism industries in the center of the triangle. Benefits from those industries must accrue equally to all three points of the triangle. 
And then I know you, that you can't get it to balance perfectly, but as a matter of policy, if you could develop a way, an analytic system to be able to measure that at some point as a way to kind of you know, manage growth, that'd be kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. That's, oh, let, let me follow up on that, because I think one big missing piece here is having the right metrics. Yes. The metrics so far have been how many visitors did we get and how many nominal dollars did we get. That drives over tourism. We need to find metrics that are related to sustainability, resident satisfaction, visitor satisfaction, real economic growth, uh, and dispersion. It's like Those, in, the, yeah. in, in the local economy. Yeah. Those are nominally the metrics that uh, are used. We just don't pay a lot of attention to some of those other metrics in, in the media, for example. Uh, I, I'm particularly, I'm going to go back and again mention the concern uh, of the long-term downturn in visitor spending and the potential uh, reduction in taxes to pay for this because our solutions are going to have to be a lot of Hanama Bay sort of place-specific mm -hmm. types of controls. And we've got to pay for those. And uh, that is, you know, I, I, I'm particularly interested in what that long-term plan is for paying for it. And the HTA is now talking about changing their emphasis from marketing to destination management. But the question, as you point out, is what they have the authority and the ability actually to do. A lot of the reactions to the impacts that we're concerned about are things that require cross-agency consultation and coordination. And it's not clear how, under our present system, that's going to happen. Who's going to be the, the czar? Perhaps it's a governor. Perhaps it's a mayor. You've got to get the county sitting at the table, too. So it, it is that uh, beyond HTA and the paying for it that are the really big questions in my mind. And don't forget the money. <laughs> it's, it's going to cost some money. I mean, if you're going to manage something, it's going to cost money. Exactly. Right, and I think the concern is managing the resource. Like Peter, you mentioned, you know, the natural resource. You've got to protect that because that's our that's our golden egg. You know, if the if the, the you know, landscape is ruined. You know, things about islands. You know, islands are small. You can make huge 50, 100 acre mistakes in Arizona or California. And you know, eventually it'll all go away. You make a 100-acre mistake in Hawaii, and you can't turn it back. There's no way to recapture lost sense of place. Mm -hmm. uh, Waikiki is way past uh, a sense of place uh, uh, thing. So, you know, there's a, there's a very good book by Stanley Plogan, and it's dated a little bit now, but he's got a chapter. It's, it's called Leisure, Tra Leisure Marketing, a Travel Guide, or something like that. But he's got a chapter in there called uh, Why destinations decline and fall and nobody does anything about it. And it's because the, the visitor experience begins to decline. And when the visitor experience begins to decline, people say it's not worth it, so they, they don't want to spend so much. If they don't spend so much, there's less money in the economy, and you go into this vicious cycle. And what he shows is that there's a correlation between visitor experience and actual real return on investment. So um, we need to pay attention to the visitor experience. Yeah, and not to, yeah, I mean, I don't mean to tell me anything, but the model we have now, the original model, was you'd get off, you'd get off the boat, which was before big numbers in it. You'd get off the boat, and you'd land, and you'd go to a hotel. There were only two here, Royal Hawaiian 
And then the way you found out what was going on is you went out in the street and you talked to local people and they would tell you, you know, where to go, what to do. Okay? So the, visit, the host and the hosted were connected. Mm -hmm. Since then, there's this huge wall of commerce that has separated the host in Hawaii, I don't know about other models, separated the host from the hosted. So for one to access the other, you gotta be able to penetrate that wall and somehow hook up. And that, I think that is one of the fundamental um, challenges we have, how do we get back to allowing local people to honestly express themselves to a visitor in a way that is, that you don't have all this stuff in between. Yes. Peter, you talked about the boat, and Martha, if I could get you to uh, talk about this, because uh, I saw in in Paris at Monet's Garden, it, it was just overrun with tourists. They had like three or four uh, cruise ships in town, and it was just crazy. You could barely get a picture of the gardens without people, you know, traipsing all over. So w what have you seen across the globe? Yeah, I mean, I think that those those kinds of problems, I mean, it's not everywhere, but it's, you know, it's been in particular places, and I, I think that that's, that's a problem. I mean, one, one very specific issue, which goes back to the airlines, but also to the cruise lines, is that port authorities and airport authorities are not controlled by the cities that are nearest them. And so, for instance, in Barcelona, they have this great plan, but the port authority, which brings in the cruise ships, is continuing to put in more, more piers and to bring in more cruise ships and to increase the numbers and so on, and they have, the city has no control over it. So they can have the best master plan they want for the city, but it doesn't control either the airport or the port. And I think that that is clearly an issue that you have to look at here in terms of at least the airports. I did some work in Morocco, and uh, they have a king. And uh, <laughs> it, it actually is a pretty good model. <laughs> um, he, and maybe it's the tourism czar that we need, but he was, they were developing this uh, resort area in the Western Sahara, and they just said, we're gonna do it here, and we're gonna do it this way, and it happened. Here we do have these, these uh, separated, uh, silos of decision-making, and that's where you get the issue in Kauai, where the DOT doesn't know what KVB is doing, and KVB wants this, and the county wants that, and, you know, that's where people get frustrated. Well, in the United States, it's really a, a, almost an anomaly, because in <clears throat> most countries where tourism is a really important sector, there is a ministry of tourism, and we don't even have a national secretary of tourism. It's just buried in the Commerce Department and then it's handled by, by the states. So we really don't have you know, national leadership on tourism or even, as you're saying, consolidated sort of state leadership. It's, it, you know, it's, and, it, and tourism is, is such an important industry across, you know, in the United States and, and particularly in the coastal areas. Uh, when HTA was created, it was, um, it's not a department, but it was meant to be a at the level of a department, but it never was. It never, ever was. Mm -hmm. And so in a place where tourism is such an important part of the economy, yeah. we don't have somebody at the highest level that's paying attention to this, that has purview over all the, or, or connection with, or coordination with all the other agencies that touch tourism. That's a big issue. It's yeah. a tricky thing because on the one hand, there's this sense of resentment that all of us sometimes have about this, this sense in the, in the resident uh, surveys that uh, this island is run more for tourists at the expense of local people. Uh, that, that is something that has to be watched. 
and yet the solutions really require a whole lot of government attention that could easily kind of tip over into that perception of, well, they're running it for the tourists and not for us. Uh, so it's a fine line to walk. But that's why you need a state strategic plan that is not just a focused on tourism. It, it, it really needs all the stakeholders around the table. You need the residents, you need the policymakers, you need the industry, and figure out how to create a model that, that as Peter says, is balanced among yeah. all those, uh, those different interests. And the communicate, I'm sorry, Peter, your turn. Okay. Oh, I was just gonna say that the communication process is critical in that because I so often over, over the decades have perceived people in the industry who have all sorts of legitimate points to make about the economic importance of tourism and how this place is going to kind of fall apart if we don't have it. But the industry tends to say, don't you understand? Don't you understand? Uh, and at the, the, people don't listen always. And coming back is, don't you understand what the impacts are? Don't you understand that I am seeing somebody across the street in, in the hippie van for me? And there's not enough listening. Somebody, the process, when we did in that sustainable tourism study, the working group that Peter and, and Frank and Annette were all involved in, we had a series of like 15 sessions. And the first four or five of them were yelling at each other. And after the yelling at each other <laughs> calmed down, then people started to listen to each other. But it does not happen fast and furious. Well, I think we've got about five minutes left, but uh, I know we've got some, I think, lawmakers in the house. Is there, are there any questions that you would like to pose uh, to some of our policy members out there? I, I mean, I know, Frank, you had tried to bend the governor's ear uh, mm -hmm. on a number of things, but uh, anybody else? Uh, I'd just like to put a plug in because we, uh, a year ago, um, a group of us said, things are pretty broken and we need to look at how to fix them. And uh, we've now written a white paper, Jim Mack, uh, Paul Brubaker, who's an economist and I, and is uh, posted at UHERO's website. Uh, UHERO is the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization. So it's uhero.hawaii.edu, and it's in a tab called Products. And I wish we had two hours to talk about this, but <laughs> uh, we tried to make it succinct. So. Okay. And Martha, what do you think our policymakers should be thinking? Have any questions for them? Well, I guess I do have some questions, but it may be out of naivete. I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, as I said before, things like why the issue of the short-term rentals hasn't been addressed in terms of policy. I see lots of heads <laughs> nodding in the audience. <laughs> Peter? Yeah, you know, first of all, I, I do believe that the, the new administration at HTA has, has, has got the right heart, and I, I think they're headed in the right direction. The, the signal, signals that are coming out now are very good. But they can only go so far without being authorized by the state legislature and, or, or the government administration. So the leadership has got to, uh, the state has to take responsibility for tourism and not just hand it off to HTA because they need help too in figuring this all out, especially in the question of resources and how do you pay for stuff. So I hope the two will come together and that there'll be a heightened sense of, of responsibility on the part of the legislature in working with HDA to create this uh, great, better management program. So whether it's uh, managing uh, vacation rentals, something's gotta happen soon. Yes. Um, I'm a researcher. 
I went through grad school. In grad school, you learn that more research is always needed. And I believe it. I believe one of the things that is important to do before we make a plan about how to manage is to do some research about what has worked well in other areas. We are very isolated out here. We tend to draw upon our past, our gut feelings, one another's statements, and those, are, those have better be part of the mix politically. But if we don't have some solid factual basis, for example, that was the first time I ever learned for certain that things have been going down in terms of spending in similar destinations. And that's important knowledge. If we were unique, that would say, oh, uh, that, that's one thing. We better find out what's wrong with us. But structural changes are happening in this industry exactly. is what I'm suspecting. Exactly. And we don't that's know right. enough about them here. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, it's a... a dilemma that we're facing. Uh, we're not going to you know, have all the answers here this evening, uh, but certainly uh, 10 million visitors this year, possibly more. Uh, lots to think about. You know, we've got uh, additional lift with Southwest coming in. Uh, a lot of times we look at airlines and we say, okay, well, what are they bringing to the islands? Are they creating jobs? What's the upside? Uh, what types of tourists are coming in? Uh, all these different you know, challenges mm -hmm. ahead of us. Um, that pretty much wraps it up on our end, and I know I think uh, the audience here may have some questions for our panelists. Hi, my name is Amako Bodo, and um, I have a question. You mentioned Southwest Airline opening flights here. Um, there was another airline a few months ago, or I know, I think Hawaiian Airlines was um, going to Southern California. They started opening up um, lanes there. And um, with all the new tourists coming in with these new airlines, um, coming into the islands, I'm wondering, is there, are there any like federal organizations tracking data or is all this tourism data just coming from different private groups that are keeping track of things? Because if going off what you say, this is becoming a real problem um, for the infrastructure here, you would think that um, you know, more federal eyes and ears and documents would be on it. So that's just my question. Oh, well, we're really good at uh, uh, collecting data, partly because of our isolation. Uh, I, I mean, everybody comes in from outside, so uh, we do have a, a lot of data. I'm not quite sure how Southwest is going to change that. The, um, um, uh, their, their plans are pretty aggressive, so uh, I'll be anxious to see myself how this plays out. I don't know if... But I think that the... the you know, the, the building of airports and the increase of air traffic definitely has a, an impact on, on tourism and needs to be planned for. And oftentimes it's not, that the airport is just built and then what happens, happens. And I, I think given the, the era we're in, that it is important to, to do some assessment of, do we need another airline, do we, you know, is, and what, what kind of, as, as Frank's been saying, what kind of tourists are, is it going to bring? Is it going to bring high value tourists, people who stay here, spend money in local businesses, you know, really move around the island, spread their spending around, and so on? Um, or is it going to bring you know, more sort of short term people who don't, don't spend very much? And um, I, I think these, these are the kind of, if you had a real planning body and a body that had some 
authority, these kind of questions could be asked. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem as if that exists at the moment. Just a quick PS or two to that. Uh, uh, Southwest is one of the major concerns that Kauai has because uh, it's, they fear that the, uh, there are going to be a whole lot more people at a, at a time when, uh, mm. when the uh, infrastructure is overwhelmed. Uh, and the other PS is that sometimes when we talk about the infrastructure being overwhelmed, we are actually talking about ourselves. And tourists are only a relatively small part of it. But that varies by island, too. Because statewide, of all the people on island on an average day last year, one in seven were tourists. On Kauai and Maui, two in seven were tourists. And at peak months, one in three were tourists. So there, the overwhelm of, of highways is arguably more real for tourists. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing, sort of like drugs. Okay, if the demand is there, the drugs will be there. If the demand is not there, the drugs go away. It's hard to figure out where to start with an issue like this. I would like to provide a little bit of context. One, Hawaii is not ran for the tourists at the expense of the locals. It is ran for the big companies at the expense of the locals and the tourists. The other one is Diamond Head. Simple solution why you saw that many people on Christmas Day is every other attraction was closed. Hanuma Bay, Pearl Harbor, Dole Pineapple Plantation. Some of this stuff is common sense when you take a step back and you look at the environment around it. So my question to you guys is, I understand lawmakers get paid to make laws. Is there any plan on enforcing any of these laws when it regards specifically to tourism operators, which I am one, or vacation rentals? There's a lot of laws out there, and there is literally zero enforcement of places like Laniakea, Waimanalo. Tour buses aren't supposed to be stopping at these places anyways. Yep. <laughs> yep. So just to reiterate, it's not enough to have the rules. We actually have to enforce them. Yep. And enforcement costs money. Hi, my name is Michael Clark. I'm a retired HPD lieutenant. And I've been to many of those cities that you mentioned worldwide, including Iceland. But I had firsthand knowledge of how things can get jammed up on our highways. Kamehameha Highway is especially true on the windward side, where I worked for my last two years. And the, the first 25 were in Kalihi, in the heart of everything. The airport, Sand Island, a quarter of a million people. And we are stressed. And I thank you guys for taking the time to be a start of something, a brainstorming session. But can you make sure that the tourism authority gets more authority or better coordination with the state government and with more input, such as from the fire department who makes all those rescues, the lifeguards, the police, and another thing that they could do, in my opinion, is to educate our tourists as they come here on those airplanes. They're a captive audience. Mm -hmm. Anybody want to address some well, of his concerns? I'll just bang the drum again. Some of those things take less money, and some of those things take more money, but they all take money. And it really, you know, finally gets down. The, the HTA, in part, has been 
facing falling budgets. Uh, and so that, if you want them to do more, you, you have to fund them better. Hello, my name is Ali Yamashita. Um, I actually was raised in Hanalei, Kauai, and I also was raised in Waikiki. So I have um, a little perspective from the best of both, both worlds. Um, growing up in Hanalei, which was, is one of the most pristine, beautiful places in all of the world. And then Waikiki, I watched in the 80s, um, the explosion of uh, Asian, Japanese um, tourism, which I'm actually half Japanese and half, I'm Hapa. Um, and when I was six, I moved to Kauai. Um, and so my, mo my mother didn't want me raised um, in a concrete jungle. Um, and now um, I, I listen um, to um, a lot of your amazing points. And uh, I just have a, a little bit of context before my question. Um, so uh, I, I grew up and um, saw the, the, um, the vacation rentals and um, now Airbnb because I think that people are um, wanting to experience um, more than just consumerism. And this is um, something that Catherine Cruz has um, brought together with all of her interviews and many points is that the world doesn't want to just consume, consume, consume anymore. We all want um, to contribute um, in an inclusive way um, to not destroying this earth, which we are all actually tourists here. So my question is, um, what do you think um, if we had a solution with the government working together um, for people who come to visit um, to be inclusive in, in planting trees and gardens because everybody wants an experience now. They don't want to just buy and buy and buy because it's no longer rewarding. They want to contribute. It's basically about volunteerism. Is there other oppor opportunities yeah. for people to do that? Uh, there are some organizations, uh, even now, without worrying about the model and the structure and everything, uh, that are, uh, that are uh, attempting to marry tourism with uh, sustainability. There's a Hawaii Ecotourism Association. Uh, they're, they're working with uh, the creation of certified guides. There's an organization called Travel to Change, which is a platform to connect visitors who want to do things with the projects that they can do. Um, there's uh, Hawaii Business Magazine uh, has a feature story this month about uh, organizations that are doing that. I think that's, um, that's something that you're going to see more and more of. Uh, when we get everybody in my dream, when we get this, all these people around the table and we talk about uh, the right kind of tourists and the right kind of behaviors, that's got to be part of the conversation. And Martha, you know a lot about ecotourism. Yeah. I mean, I would just say that I've come to become convinced that, that sustainability or um, responsible travel is no longer a lifestyle choice or something that can be dabbled in by a fringe part of the tourism industry. It has to be mainstreamed and it has to be the hot, we can't continue to travel the way we have been. We've got to, you know, we've got to figure out how to do it sustainably. And I think you, you know, your question goes to part of that. I mean, for instance, we take the, the, the whole growth since 2008 of uh, this explosion of Airbnb. I mean, it was supposed to be the sharing economy. It's become big business and it's become, you know, driven by Silicon Valley and so on. And it's corrupted. There, w there was a need. They were playing on 
a real human need for wanting to have real interactions. And I've seen this, this model actually work beautifully in Cuba, where we're doing a lot of work, where there is a shortage of hotels and the fact that people can stay in local households takes care of the shortage of hotels and gives tourists a really great experience because you're living with a family. Here, more and more, you're just staying in some place that has been rented. You never see the owner. You never have any interaction. They have multiple places that they're renting and so on. It's a corruption of the original concept. And I think that you know, with some controls and some legal boundaries on it, it can go back to being much more of the kind of intimate tourism that, frankly, a lot of tourists want. That's a growing, huge growing sector of the market. And Hawaii is absolutely positioned to capture that market. And you should be going after it, because these are the people who want to learn about Hawaiian culture. They want to see the beauty of the place. They want to you know, really experience what, what Hawaii has that's, uh, that is so special. They're the ones who are going to leave more money, come back, tell their neighbors about it, you know, and so on. They're going to be the ambassadors for Hawaii. And those are the kinds of tourists. But that takes planning. It takes management to, to figure out how to capture that, how to build the structures here to, cap, to, to appeal to those people, and then how to capture that market. The, uh, the notion of volunteerism, I, I don't know how many of you know about Uncle George, who does uh, free uh, paddleboard lessons out at Tokai Bay in Waianae, right. generally Wednesdays. That is an incredible uh, uh, act of aloha that he does out there and you know, with the internet. Uh, but, so the answer is absolute uh, tremendous opportunities for that kind of uh, you know, aloha to be given to tourists. We, we should always remember that what we're complaining about here is really tourists loving us too much, being being too curious about us, or, or too many of them being too curious. But that impulse is something we should welcome and something that, if we can get our model working right, should find a way to channel better than we do. My name is Anthony Alto. Um, thank you for your comments this evening. Um, if I may say so, I think you've kind of dodged the question. The question is, how much tourism is too much? Um, I'd like to suggest that 10 million is too much and I think you should impose a limit. And I speak um, as, I guess, a kind of a harbinger. Um, I've, I apologize to my friends who've heard me say this before, but I grew up on what I call the Oahu of the Mediterranean, an island called Mallorca. And Mallorca and Oahu are very, very similar. Similar in size, similar in population, similar in the issues they're dealing with. I just wanted to throw some numbers at you. Uh, in 1960, which was pretty much the year that tourism, the tourism industry kicked off, the birth of the modern jet airliner and what have you, in both places. Um, I'll get to my question. Um, there were um, about 300,000 tourists visited Hawaii, about 400,000 visited the Balearic Islands. Uh, last year, as we heard, 9.8 million visited Hawaii, 16 million visited the Balearic Islands. And as a result, there has been an overwhelming reaction. Ms. Honey talked a bit about it. I don't think it's been as bad in, Mallorca, in uh, Barcelona as it's been in Mallorca. They've had thousands of people marching mm -hmm. on City Hall. They have had people demonstrating at the airport, holding up signs when tourists arrive saying, tourists not welcome here. Mm -hmm. They have demonstrations outside hotels. 
The point I'm getting to is that the politicians realized that sentiment was such that they couldn't do what you guys have been suggesting this evening, which is to manage the process, the, the problem. You've talked about process. The politicians realized that sentiment had reached the point where they had to put a stop to it, so they've put a cap. They measure capacity there by the number of beds, so they've capped it at just a little less than 625,000 beds. Tourists, that's hotels and Airbnb. And they did another thing, they've imposed a $4 a day tax on tourists, and all of that money goes to the environment and to trying to preserve the very things that that massive influx of tourism is undermining. So my question to you, and I'm sorry it's taken so long to get there, I apologize. But my question to you is, why are we not considering hard limits on the number of tourists who can visit? Uh, part of the answer to that is it, it comes back to that pesky constitution. Um, you're, you're talking about a different, a different government, a different model. Um, there, are, there are some things that we can do that, uh, that can sort of guide uh, the, the management, but when you say, can we cap it at 10 million, that's, that's in the United States system with our form of government, that's just, it's just, I wish it were possible, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to do. But it's I difficult to do directly. I mean, I, I would say that I, I think just setting a number in and of itself is not enough. I mean, the Galapagos tried to do that. They first said, I don't know, 30,000, then 40,000, then 50,000, now it's 100,000. It, it is ultimately about management, but I do think that there is something to numbers, and, and part of the solution, for instance, in Barcelona is to say no new hotels and no more B&Bs in the city center. In Dubrovnik, they have limited the number of Tour, of cruise tourists that can be in the old city on a day. So there are some, but, but it's part of a, of a broader management plan. And so I, I think that just to say, for Hawaii to say, first of all, we're hearing we can't do it legally, but if, if it could be done legally, just cap it at 10 million and do nothing else would not necessarily solve the problems. You would still have too many people on some of the beaches and some of the sites and so on. You need to have a much more um, holistic approach to it. I mean, numbers can be a piece of it, but it's not, it's not the whole solution. You know, as, as Frank points out, the, uh, uh, the, the, one of the interesting aspects of, of the level of tourism we're at now is the airlift that it creates. 90% of our food is imported mm. by plane, mostly, because they're so when you begin to do things that begins to affect the airlift, the capacity of our, you know, in terms of our dependency on imported stuff, a lot of things like that, that you gotta kinda be careful about how you do. But I tend to agree with you, 10 million is too much. <laughs> Thank you, I'm so honored to have the last question. <laughs> I'm Barbara Tanabe, uh, and I wanna thank all of you, because I thought this was really an excellent panel discussion. Um, however, I feel like I'm listening to an echo. I've heard this 30 or 40 years ago. Same thing, exact same thing. The numbers have changed, the types of visitors have changed, but it's really the same issue being discussed. So my question is, we started out talking about the we should improve the quality of the visitor we want more of a strong quality economic impact. 
And at one time, there was discussion about diversified tourism, medical tourism, sports tourism, educational tourism. What happened to all that? Frank. Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, nothing. Uh, was, uh, you know, I don't think anyone. I, 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 it comes back to the euphoria that we had over growth. Uh, everybody was so happy that we set records year after year that nobody seriously looked at uh, the need. I mean, people talked about diversifying tourism, people talked about higher quality. Uh, Paul Brubaker and I, who are co authors on this paper, uh, he said, well, you know, You've talked about better tourists and higher yield tourists forever, and, and, and that doesn't work. And I said, well, that's because we really haven't done it. Uh, we really have to get serious about this. And I think the discussion tonight and the interest of all these people here really says, maybe the times are changing. Maybe, maybe we're at a point where some of the stuff that we know we need to do, that we've talked about for years, will finally get some traction. Um, and I, it's going to take all of us to, to come to that conclusion, to get around the table and say, enough is enough. We can't, it's not the Hawaii of 20 or 30 years ago. It's the Hawaii of 2019 with 10 million visitors who are causing problems in these areas and not, not pulling their weight when it comes to the economy. So it's, it's time to, to have that conversation and actually make something happen. You know, Barbara, you, br you bring up a really interesting question that, it, that is not only applicable to tourism, but there are, another, another, there are a whole bunch of other areas where for years, decades, we've had the right words in place, legislation, public policy. Uh, one of those areas, well, you know, the whole energy thing. 35 years ago, we were talking about, you know, converting uh, non-fossil, blah, I'll get rid of that. And it's only now that we're actually starting to do something about it. So I think across the board, you know, our, uh, as an island state, the, uh, we've said a lot of good things. We just need to act on it, do something. There was a time around the turn of the century when there, <laughs> turn of the millennium, 19 years ago, okay? There was a time when there was this sort of tacit, underground, unofficial statement that, okay, we've, we've reached it because we're not going to approve any more resorts. And there haven't been any major new resorts approved since then. But this thing called the Internet came along. And then this thing called Airbnb came along. So every time that you think about how you are going to accomplish this, you can accomplish it perhaps for a while, given your current circumstances, and then you have to have some kind of system that's gonna, gonna respond and be able to, as the business model changes, as the world changes, as technology changes. And with respect to the other guy, I, I don't think we've been dodging the question. I think we've been thinking about it very hard for 30 or 40 years. <laughs> Let's do something about it. <laughs> A very big round of applause for our panelists tonight. Thank you so much.